Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, my hand-sanitizing friends. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We strongly advise listener discretion. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Jump, jump, jump. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free, 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, please go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Let's get on with the show. Since our show started, Scott and I have talked off and on about covering this creep yep. in an away game. Yep, yep. Uh, the reason we have avoided this story for so long is that it involves pedophilic kidnapping, rape, and murders of three innocent young boys. Mm-hmm. Violence against adults is tough enough to talk about, but once the innocence of a child becomes a factor, I find the research particularly disturbing, and I struggle even getting the words out during recording. Yeah, I I can imagine. I can imagine. And this is an exceptionally challenging one. I hate to ever use words like fascinating and stuff when or, or favorite when talking about yeah. crime because it doesn't fit. This but, is one of our, uh, the two of us, it's one of our pet cases because of yes. what we went through as children. Absolutely. There, and the candor of the individual. There's a lot in this one that makes it one for us to be intrigued by. Right. We will cover this in our usual respectful way, providing only the details necessary to move the narrative forward. But As this case does involve children, some listeners may find what follows upsetting. It will be stressful and possibly triggering for many. This man's life leading up to his crimes was full of red flags. There were many missed opportunities to stop him before he went as far as he did. 
as this monster's victims were kids who barely had a life to speak of, this is not our usual fare. It's a glance into the life of a depraved man, a serial pedophile and psychopathic murderer. Every parent's worst nightmare, it's a cautionary tale. This is episode 133, Away Game, Stranger Danger, Wesley Allen Dodd. That, that's a name that always haunts me. He gives me the creeps. Yes. Uh, unlike many serial offenders, Wesley Allen Dodd was frank with authorities, as Scott mentioned, and the press about his crimes. He also kept a detailed diary that gives researchers a valuable look into the mind of this pedophilic murderer. And I did read this journal. I read mm. the entire thing that has been published online. Oh, wow. I have not. And uh, I don't use a lot of it in this show. That bad, eh? Yeah. Oh, my God. He's very, very detailed in oh, the journal. Fuck. <sighs> yeah. He was candid about his previous sex crimes as well as his thoughts and feelings before, during, and after the murders of the three little boys. And they were the near brothers, Billy 10 and Cole 11, in September of 1989. And then in October 1989, he murdered four-year-old Lee Isley. Without giving away what we'll get into later, it's that candor that he had that was something that was very intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Because uh, up until Wesley Allen Dodd, whenever I would see an interview with a serial killer, this uh, there was always this somewhat defensiveness, even if, yes, I did it. But, you know, I felt like the, he was very frank. Yeah. And that really caught me off guard. Wesley Allen Dodd was born on July 3rd, 1961 in a small city in central Washington called Toppenish. Wesley was the oldest of three children. His parents were Carol and her husband, Wesley James Dodd, who people called Jim. In a 1993 interview with the Seattle Times, Jim Dodd talked about his eldest son's childhood. Quote, As a very young child growing up, mostly in eastern Washington, Wes was, quote, very cute and happy, says his father, Wesley James Dodd. His only brother, Greg, 11 months younger, remembers the two of them playing army, sliding down a huge snow mound, and teasing younger sister Catherine. But in grade school, Wes began moving to the sidelines of life. Small for his age, pigeon-toed and bookwormish, he was picked on by his classmates, his brother says. Jim Dodd remembers that his older son was uncoordinated, unable to throw a baseball, or run as well as other boys. Quote, He was the kid who would have been called a sissy when I was in school. Mm -hmm. End quote. Wesley later recalled memories that there was, quote, no love in their family home, that no one ever said, I love you. His brother Greg remembered differently, telling the Seattle Times, quote, We're not the Waltons, very few families are, Greg said, but there was love there. I felt it and my sister felt it, end quote. Wesley Allen Dodd's diary, found after his arrest in a briefcase he kept under his bed, provides his recollection of significant events in his life that he claimed contributed to his paraphilias. He wrote that on the weekend of his ninth birthday, while his siblings were in the hospital getting their tonsils removed, Wesley had his first memorable sexual experience with a nine-year-old cousin. They were playing in a kiddie pool outside. Wesley watched while his male cousin and the cousin's friend, also nine, pulled down their bathing suits, touched each other, and rubbed their genitals together. Wesley did the same with his cousin. He claimed it felt good, and shortly after that, he began rubbing himself when he was alone. 
He recalled an embarrassing incident when his mother forced him to change his pants three times in front of his aunts, stripping down to his underwear as the women watched and commented. A counselor told Dodd that this was, quote, normal sexual experimentation, but Wesley felt these events were more sinister and formative to his later behavior. I can understand being forced to strip down in front of family members who are commenting on that. Who knows what they were saying? Yeah, we're taking the word of a convicted serial killer. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Right? It, they could have just been, you know, yeah. like, oh, isn't he adorable? And yeah. These are common occurrences that uh, more often than not don't lead to murderers. That's correct. The family moved around a lot, and Wesley was unable to form lasting friendships. He writes later that around 10 years old, he played show-and-tell with a local girl in a garage. Again, normal. She hiked up her skirt and pulled down her underpants, allowing him to ogle her. But when it was his turn to show, she was uninterested, saying she'd seen it before on another boy. Dodd claimed that from this point on, his main interest was in boys. He wrote explicitly, quote, This may explain why a lot of my future victims would be males. The Department of Psychology at Radford University hosts an extensive database of serial killer profiles, including timelines highlighting significant incidents in their development through their crimes and into their incarceration, if applicable. Yeah. Wesley Allen Dodd's profile emphasizes his early sexual development. When Dodd was 11 years old, quote, he began realizing that he had different interests from the other children his age and began searching for pictures of nude beaches so he could see the naked people on the beach. And I, again, I don't think that's you're, different somehow. Your, your thoughts are completely aligned with mine, where my brain is going, well, this is typical of trying to understand sexuality, mm -hmm. the body, yeah. preferences and stuff. So, yeah. At 12, his peers began to make fun of him when his interest in boys became apparent to them. Wesley asked another boy to shower with him, who rebuffed him and told Dodd's classmates about the incident. That would be quite traumatizing for a kid. Yeah. That same year, Wesley's real troubles began. Dodd's friend described to him about how his stepdad had to use a catheter to urinate. Later, Dodd would begin experimenting with his body and would put straight pins and the filler of ink pens into his penis. Who does that remind you of? Albert Fish. Fish. Yeah. Dodd said that he would trick his victims by saying that he could do tricks, quote, kind of like a sword swallower, to lure them to his house, and then he would molest them, mm -hmm. end quote. And this was at 12. Yep. <laughs> the strife in the Dodd family grew in intensity as Wesley grew up. His parents argued loudly and often. According to Wesley, the Dodds were emotionally tapped out due to their constant bickering and did not have a lot left for the kids. Mm. Wesley found solace in increasingly disturbing sexual activity as he entered his teens and began puberty. Wesley also blamed his conduct on a lack of sexual education. In May of 1975, quote, Dodd started flashing young children. Mm. Wesley claimed it was because he was uneducated about sex. He started by standing naked in his bedroom window while children passed on their way to school, but soon learned that this would get him into trouble. He could flash boys because boys didn't report me as often as girls. During two months, he exposed himself to over 40 children, end so, quote. Pinning some of this on lack of sexual education, we're from the 70s. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there wasn't a lot of it. There was no, like, they, my parents got upset with me for having a magazine in the house. Yes. I, I've got, I had the most, uh, at the time, hippie, socialist, liberal parents. Uh, and so, I mean, we, if I wanted to, I could talk about it, but it just, these conversations weren't quite often happening in homes no. in the 70s. No. And most of us didn't go on to flash people outside of our windows. No. Age 14 was a big year in the development of the psychopathic killer who would later be called the Vancouver Child Killer, and that's Vancouver, Washington, Washington not yeah. BC. The police became aware of Wesley's practice of flashing other kids and visited the Dodd home. It's unclear how his parents dealt with this incident, if at all. Mm -hmm. From this point on, Wesley became more secretive about his activities. From his profile on the Radford University site, quote, because of his fear of getting caught, Dodd began masturbating daily and experimenting with his genitals. Oh, jeez. I'm making a lot of faces over here. And don't get me I mean, wrong. I'm making faces saying this stuff. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Let your freak flag fly. Like, I, like, yeah. do whatever you want. Whatever Have floats fun. your boat. But it's as long as you're not hurting somebody. It's just knowing this person yeah. and what they go on to do. Mm -hmm. Hearing these things makes you go, oh, Jesus. Because it, how, oh. But anybody else, hang whatever you want off your testicles. I don't care. That same year, in separate incidents, he molested his sister's 10-year-old friend, an 8-year-old female cousin and her 6-year-old brother, as well as raping an 8-year-old male cousin. Oof. He also attempted to rape his sister while she slept, but she woke up and thwarted Wesley. She did not tell her parents. Yeah, I can imagine. That would be... You don't know how to react. Yeah, you're a kid. Yeah, you she don't... was probably no more than 10. Yeah, you don't know... What's right? What's wrong? Yeah. In those, in that sense, what you should do, what you should, yeah, total victim. Wesley's Christmas gift in 1975 was a shiny new bicycle. Now a mobile pedophile, Wesley rode around town, exposing himself to at least another ten children over the next month. From Carol M. Ostrom and Jack Broom's Seattle Times article in January 1993, quote: Once Jim Dodd blackened his wife's eye. More often, he spanked the children with a belt, Wesley told a court investigator in 1989. I treated small problems at home with anger instead of reason, Jim Dodd recalled recently. Mm. I felt I had no control of my life and was being overwhelmed by everyday problems. Mm. On July 3rd, 1976, Carol, his wife, demanded that Jim leave. Jim responded by attempting to kill himself. It was Wesley's 15th birthday. Well, happy birthday. Right. Oh, man. That'll be a lasting memory. Quote, I was a loner, never talked to anybody about anything. I never talked about my feelings. End quote. Dodd being interviewed by Officer Mark Mann in 1990. Mm. The next year, Jim and Carol divorced. End quote. So, without a doubt, traumatizing and shitty things happened to him. Oh, for sure. But we, you know, you always have to fall back on you. Like, you come from a, a home where your parents broke up, divorced. Yep, 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 yep absolutely. Uh, you and Jimmy are not um, serial killers or, or I, I horrible speak. sex sexual deviants, as far as I can. For myself, I've come from a broken home. I, as we've talked about on the show, I've yeah. had massive, massive traumas happen to me as a child, yep. damaged me, but I, I did not lash out on other people. No. 
Yeah, you took it all internally and I took it all internally. And yeah, became depressed and imploded. Wesley began playing what he called the guessing game with local children at an elementary school. He would have them close their eyes and hold out their hand. Wesley would then place his penis into their hand and ask them to guess what they were holding. That's disgusting. That is, yeah. Oh, God. And again, knowing who he becomes and mm-hmm. is. But this is the whole point of this episode yeah. is to look at the progression, the progression yeah. of this person's behavior. Police arrested Wesley for the first time in March of 1977 for exposing himself to two little girls, only 8 and 10. The lanky 15-year-old who was playing clarinet in the high school band was charged with communicating with a minor for immoral purposes. Wesley admitted to four more instances. Authorities dismissed the charges when Wesley agreed to attend counseling, which he did intermittently for the rest of his life before imprisonment. Mm. From Driven to Kill by Gary C. King, everybody decided that it wasn't bad enough to do anything about, said Dodd. The police were ignoring me. My parents were ignoring me. The police asked me about several incidents around town, and I said, yes, those were me. And they said, well, we're not going to press charges. Looking back, I can see that, in a way, I was taught by the police that it was okay to do that. I don't blame them for anything, but they decided there wasn't anything bad enough that anything needed to be done. And I think that was the wrong way for them to think. You know, if accurate, I can see truth to how that would have one think. Oh, I guess it's not that bad. Yeah. If everybody who can know knows and are doing nothing about it, it must not be, it's got, you know, it must not be that bad. I can continue. It makes it easier for you to justify it to yes. yourself, for sure. And again, if it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm never quite sure if these guys are ever yeah, saying anything ex- that's entirely truthful. Because they've lived a life of lies and deceits. And, and it's so, all, maybe know. there's a kernel of truth to what yeah. they say, yeah. and they're they're twisting things to, to fit their sick narrative. narrative. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. By this time, Wesley had molested many children and gotten away with it almost every time. Mm. He was learning that most children will not talk. Yeah, I mean, it's so early into the story, and I've already lost count of how many people he's abused. Exactly. And these are the ones we know about. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. My question to you as a parent is, what have you told your kids about speaking up if somebody does something inappropriate to them? We've had a lot of conversations because of what I do, I co-host a true crime podcast, and I watch a lot of true crime and with them. And so we've had a lot of conversations, real ones. I've talked to them about like, okay, girls, so what do we do in this situation? And of course, you know, if you're like, if somebody comes up and says, help me find my dog, they're like, oh, of course we wouldn't go with them and stuff. And I'm like, girls, let's be honest. I, I know you guys, you love dogs. If somebody came up and said this, you would, you would be like, absolutely. So let's watch this so you can see the possible outcome of doing that. So you showed them Silence we, of the Lambs. I showed them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Precious. Yeah. And uh, can you help me with the put this it, thing in the back of my truck? My just couch. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah. It, it's it's a difficult conversation because you don't want them to now be terrified of the right. world. Or, or, or you don't want them to just tell people, no, I can't help you. Exactly. Yeah. But you do want them to be aware. And so, not you know, I'm not just like, this is what could happen and plop them on the couch and then walk out. We continue to have dialogue. We've watched a lot and we've had a lot of dialogue about, okay, so you can still be a good person. 
here's how. Mm. If somebody says, can you help me do this? You say, you know what? Let me go get an adult and we'll help you. Yeah, perfect. Our friend Jen mm-hmm. once said something to me that I've passed on to my girls and it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. So much sense. At no point in time does an adult ever actually need anything from a kid. No, it's true. You know, like there's no situation where an adult really, really no. needs to ask, hey, strange kid. Yeah. Like that's just not something adults need. I've never in my life been, oh shit, I lost my keys. Hey, kid outside. There are other lures that these guys use. Oh, absolutely. They're like pl- the one used on me. What time is it? Yep. Like that, it was that simple. What oh. time is it? And by the time I'm answering, he's on top of me. Yep. It, or yep. the other one, which is your parent has been hurt and they yep. sent me. Exactly where I was to going. To get right? you. Exactly where I was going. Or I'm a police officer. I'm an undercover police officer. Yep. Your mom's been hurt. I need to. Exactly. And so I've gone over that many times with my, you know, uh, say, okay, let me go get a teacher first. Yeah. Okay. Let me go get an adult first. Let me go. And and then the teacher or whomever can make that decision. Can ask for help to make that Okay. Can I see a badge? What's the contact information? Can we call the hot, you know? So at no point in time, no matter what they say. Mm-hmm. And we've gone over and over and over. We've kind of drilled there's it. There's so many crazy scenarios. Yep. But the thing that Jen said that I, I really like that an adult never needs a stranger child for anything. Like that just isn't the case. No. And so, under every circumstance, I said to my daughters, if an adult asks you for something, go get somebody. Yeah. 16 year old Wesley Dodd's disturbing behavior continued to escalate from his profile on the Radford University site. Quote, He was asked to fill in for a neighbor's usual babysitter and molested their two sons, aged one and four, and their three-year-old daughter as they slept. Mm. In September 77, he began to masturbate in the Columbia High School Auditorium, but he evaded detection. In October 1977, Dodd went on his first date with a girl, Mm. and he later stated that it was one of the worst evenings of his life, He denies any sexual contact with that girl. So he was trying to keep up appearances. I talk about it more later on. I think it's exactly what you just nailed, though, keeping Mm -hmm. up appearances. Yeah. Both Carol and Jim had new relationships. Both came with children from previous marriages, Mm -hmm. giving Wesley access to fresh victims. In December 1977, he started molesting the three-year-old daughter of his dad's girlfriend. Oh, Jesus Christ. So he had no preference, male or female. Yeah. Well, he he may have had a preference, but he was willing to... If the opportunity presented yes, itself. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Journalist Shirley Lynn Scott wrote in a later CrimeLibrary.com article, quote, Dodd described himself as socially isolated, intimidated by girls. While others began dating and going to high school dances, Dodd stayed home thinking of ways to instigate sexual activity with children. End quote. God, that just kills me. God damn it. Hmm. As with many classic pedophiles, Wesley came up with several ways to put him into positions of trust and power with prepubescent children. After graduating high school at 18 years old, Wesley acquired work as a counselor at a Christian music camp. There, he played strip poker with seven boys between eight and nine years old. In July of 1979, while at camp, he kissed his first girl. He kissed her once, avoiding her for the rest of the summer, feeling she was too experienced for him. So 
I don't know whether he's actually trying to run away from whatever this is inside him by mm. attempting to do normal things mm. or what he's up to. Um, in August of 1979, Dodd encountered a young boy who was fishing alone in a wooded area. He asked the boy if he wanted to see something, quote, really neat. Once they were alone, he demanded the boy undressed, but they were interrupted by another group of kids before Dodd was able to molest him. In September 1979, Dodd found an empty house in an isolated area one block from Sacagawea Elementary School. He would take small boys to this house and play strip poker with them. In November 1979, Dodd finally realized that his only interest was boys and girls under the age of 10 after a girl who was a year younger than him asked him out on a date and he refused to go. Oh, So one of the things that really got me was that him sitting, everybody else is out having fun. He's sitting at home plotting. Yeah. That got me because I know that's what the guy who molested me was doing. He was my neighbor and I know he was because he would put himself in situations as I'm walking home where, oh, there he is. Yeah. His name was Corky, right? Uh, Coco. Coco. Yeah. So his if, name was Coco. That's what he called himself. Yeah. And, and so can you describe him? I can. Uh, he was actually rather handsome. He was probably mm, late twenties, mm -hmm. uh, very surfer, blonde hair, right. not not necessarily curly, but had some curls too. Like he should be in fast times at Ridgemount High. Yeah, uh, you know, fit, good looking, a uh, Caucasian. Um, I remember him saying to me, um, I remember him saying to me early on, oh yeah, no, I have kids too, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I'm not allowed to see them though. My wife uh, has them and I'm not allowed to see my kids and stuff. And so you just like... Clearly, he's got a history of this, but uh, so you've had a lot of time to think about it too. Uh, yeah, almost almost forty years. Yeah. yeah, and so, but I know because of the, like how he would put himself. I remember as I'm walking home from school, he would he comes out of a laundry. He right? would oh, always Scott. intercept you. Somehow. Yes, yeah. And so I you hearing that he's at sitting at home thinking about ways he can abduct and. Uh, you know, uh, assault kids. I know that that's what this fucker was doing. And he was yeah. just sitting there planning, well, where does he go? He, I know where he goes to school and blah, blah. And yeah. So that, that just rings out to me, that kind of planning, that kind of, oh, it's not just opportunity. No, he makes, he made the opportunity. Yes. Yes, exactly. Wesley returned to the music camp the next summer when he was 19, finding more victims there. He molested young boys in the camp showers. In October of that year, Wesley Allen Dodd's behavior took another disturbing turn. He attempted to abduct two girls aged 11 and 7. They escaped and reported him to the police. He admitted to wanting to molest them and his plan to take them to an isolated area at the river, but no charges were brought against him mm. at the time. Jesus Christ. So when he was 20, perhaps in an attempt to run away from what he was becoming... Dodd enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Mm -hmm. He later admitted, quote, if I hadn't joined the Navy, then I may have been killing within a year. <sighs> and we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Yes. And all I can think about is how did this guy get away with this for so long? And why didn't anybody <sighs> try to stop him? You know, his... I read stuff that his father sus suspected there was deviance happening. Yep, yep. The police were aware of it. Prosecutors are obviously aware of it. If he's arrested and 
maybe charges are considered and all these kind of things. What the heck? Like, so at this point, he's 20. So it's, he's, it's probably 1990, oh, late 80s. No, no, it's, 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 it's the early 80s. So so, and, so they're and, saying, and, oh, he'll grow out of it? I think that at that time, that, that was a lot of the thinking was, um, it was a culture of justification and rationalizing of, oh, well, you know, these things happen. He'll, it's, it's not going to continue to have, well, okay, but this time it was different. Yeah. There's always, instead of trying to, there wasn't a lot of let's confront yeah. social problems. And uh, it was before the satanic panic thing yeah. happened. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of eyes on pedophilia, even yep. if some of that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. But, and uh, so, uh, I mean, the biggest lesson that most of us learned about pedophilia in the eighties was the different strokes episode. Oh my gosh. When, uh, yeah. when Arnold was molested by the guy with the bike, bike shop. shop yeah. 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 That was like, that, that was kind of like, <clears throat> oh, here, this is what it is. We've done it. It still happened to me after that. I, yeah, same. I know. Like, yeah. yeah. But like, that was kind of like, you know. Even though I was moved by that episode and I remembered it. <laughs> yeah. It, that still happened to me. But I mean, now, you know, you're, you're going to hear about it on TV. You're going to hear doctors talk about it. You're going to be able to read books on it's it. It's more normalized know. than it was. Yes. On how to deal back. Or the. The dealing with it is more normalized. I shouldn't say pedophilia is normalized because yeah, that's and, not, not and, correct. And the signs to look out for what is deviant and abnormal behavior now versus what we thought it was back then and stuff. And so, and none of this is ever to be like, oh, it's okay to have ignored it. Yeah. But that that's the reality of that time. And so it, I can understand it sucks and it pisses me off that he didn't get incarcerated for it, but- when you go, yeah, okay, 80s, yeah, 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 that sounds like, that sounds right. The Navy did not change Wesley Allen Dodd at all. He kept trying relationships with more age-appropriate women, though. Still, most were extremely awkward and short-lived as Wesley was more interested in keeping up appearances than he was yeah. any actual connection. Yeah. Many pedophiles hide their predilections by maintaining relationships with women closer to their age so as not to attract attention to themselves. It's much easier to hide in plain sight. With some women also came children from prior relationships offering the predator more access to new victims. Yeah, and that's quite a common occurrence in, with pedophiles. Wesley also molested the children of other service members on the naval base in Bangor, Washington. When he was on leave from submarine duty, Dodd would molest children in Seattle movie theater bathrooms where he would take himself to see Disney matinee movies because oh he knew he would God, find a lot yes. of kids there. Oh, Jesus Christ. Dodd found video game arcades a prime hunting ground as well. Honing his skill as a predator, Wesley developed an eye for possible targets, some of whom he would offer cash to remove their pants in front of him. From Gary C. King's Driven to Kill, quote, Wesley spent two years in the Navy but was given a, quote, general discharge for disciplinary reasons. Hmm. When asked to explain, he said that the discharge was the result of an incident in which he had approached two young boys and attempted to entice them into going with him by offering them money. After he'd molested them, they reported the incident, and he was arrested within a few days by the military police. So here he is again, caught again. By military police. And they know he's guilty. That's why they give him a discharge. Yeah. But that, we're done. 
hands uh, hands are wiped clean. We we did our part. We got him out of here. It's the equivalent of moving a pedophile priest. We're just going to move him to a different. It's a hot potato. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like oh, it's problematic to deal with this because the kids might be lying. And what evidence do we have other than their word? Yep. It's his word against theirs. And we can say now that we've dealt with it, we've addressed it, mm-hmm. we've taken measures, we've addressed it. It's terrible. Yeah. After leaving the Navy in 1983, Dodd moved in with his dad, who'd gone to Lewiston, Idaho by mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Wesley molested a new crop of neighborhood kids there before moving back to Washington State. Holy fuck. Again, from Driven to Kill. In 1986, at the age of 25, Dodd moved back to the Tri-Cities area in Washington. He rented an apartment in a complex that was inhabited mostly by single mothers. He began a five-month, quote, sexual relationship, as he called it, with a four-year-old boy who lived nearby after witnessing the boy and a three-year-old girl exposing their genitals to one another. After seeing the incident, Dodd approached the kids and threatened to tell their mothers. Later... Dodd coaxed the boy back to his apartment where he fondled him, end quote. I mean, so what happened to you? Just d- yep. It didn't happen once. There was one main event, but there were lots of little ones leading up to and after. Gotcha. Yes. yes. He would, there was lots of grooming. Mm-hmm. There was one incident where, yes, he, he had got me into his place, into his room alone, yeah. and he did things to me. Was that the only time that you were ever really alone with him, though? No. There was another time, I can't remember if it was before or after, but he was very public about it. He took me to a swimming pool, Templeton Swimming Pool. Yeah. And um, I can remember we went there, mm-hmm. and he, uh, part of the way he, like, you know, he had me try on shorts the day before. That was oh, one yeah. of his way, well, you know, I've got some shorts that'll fit you, and you should try them. We'll just try them on now. Uh, that is one way that he started to... Right. Uh, but then Make I, you comfortable being... Almost naked in yes. front of him. Well, naked, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and leading up to more uh, penetration related incidents. And then I remember we were he took me to a swimming pool, a mm-hmm. public swimming pool. Yep. Uh, at one point while we were there, he, oh, I've lost my contacts. Mm-hmm. One of my contacts must have fallen out into the. Okay, I'm going to hold you underwater and see if you can if you can try to you know reach around and see if you can find. And then you hold me by my genitalia and uh. hold and hold me underwater, right? And front of all kinds of people. And I do remember somebody being like, uh, "What's what's going on here?" He's like, "Oh, I lost my contact." And he's just trying to help me find my contact. And I think they were like, uh, "You could tell they were uneasy," but right, I think yeah. they then tried to help. Yeah, uh, and then I remember we were when when going home afterwards, he was like, um, "I remember we're waiting for the bus, so I better get you home. I don't want my pa- I don't want your parents to think I'm a pedophile. Do you do you, do you know what pedophile is?" And I'm like, "No, I don't." And then he pr- proceeds to describe to me, and I remember thinking like, "Well, that's what you are." Yeah, but he's like, "You know, I better get you home, so I don't want them to think that." Then he gets me home, and the old well, you know, if you tell anybody. They're going to blame you, and, you know, I don't want to have to hurt family members and stuff like that. After Wesley's encounter with the four-year-old, his ideas became even more violent and depraved. In 1987, Dodd had become obsessed with torture and continuously fantasized about murdering a child. He came across an eight-year-old boy while working as a security guard. 
Wesley used the uniform to gain the child's trust, asking the youngster to help him find another, quote, lost boy. Dodd planned to abduct, torture, and murder the child, but the boy sensed that something was not right and told Dodd that he was going home and would be right back. The boy's mother called police, who arrested Dodd. Holy shit. That was close. Holy shit. That, uh, that child would likely be dead right now had he not done that. In a later interview, Wesley related his view of what happened with that child. Quote, I was arrested for investigation of attempted kidnapping, was finally charged with attempted unlawful detainment, and got 90 days time served, and one year probation, got some counseling again, kind of bounced around with the counselors there, and my ex-girlfriend came back to me. I ended up quitting my job and moved down to Yakima with her, she disappeared a week later, and that's when I moved down to Vancouver. Mm. So, yeah, once again, uh, there's no real ramifications. No. From Dirk C. Gibson's book, Serial Murder and Media Circuses, quote, At times in his life, he enjoyed nocturnal naked jaunts in public. Shirley Lynn Scott recalled that, quote, Sometimes Dodd went out on bizarre nude excursions, rollicking in a children's playground naked in the middle of the night, end quote. But not all his behavior was so childlike and innocent, albeit strange. It is estimated that he molested more than 50 children over the years. So I was going to say, I was uh, going to ask a few paragraphs ago, I wonder how many he's uh, ab- assaulted. In my head, I was thinking, like, God, it's got to be up near 100. Well, because. Nobody really knows the no, real number. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure he doesn't. Well, no, he well, can probably I'm pretty, recall. I'm pretty certain he doesn't know anything now, Scott. <laughs> um, Vancouver, Washington is a city just over the Columbia River from yeah. Portland, Oregon. So it's about yeah. a 10-hour drive from here, yep. say. Yeah, which is close enough. Yeah. Several folks who live in that Vancouver commute to Portland every day for work. Wesley got a job as a shipping clerk in Vancouver and started molesting children there. Still, as with many psychopaths, Dodd bored of even the most depraved sexual activity and the internal drive to make his murderous dark fantasies come true took over his life. Wesley later told police, quote, I knew that it was wrong and it would stop me for a while, but after a while, things started building up. Stress, things on the job, things not going good. And after a point, I couldn't really control myself anymore, end quote. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't being honest with anybody about it. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, he has this odd obsession. He's going to counselors. He has every opportunity to have this thing stop by himself by admitting to what he's doing and saying, I need some help. Yep. Which he never did. And, and, you know, that is an interesting point uh, because it really is kind of the differentiator between um, somebody being not insane, but, you know, not criminally responsible. Right. You know, it's, like in it, psychosis. Yes, versus, uh, I remember John Douglas used to say, oh, you knew it was wrong enough to not do it in front of police. Yeah, right. So your brain may be fucked and you may be broken, but you understand it's wrong because you hit it. Yeah. You didn't do it. Whereas when, when you look at the Greyhound beheading, that is a different story because that person was doing it in front of everybody. And he was, believed he was in the right. Yes. And so the, those are where the differences come into play. Mm. Like if you're, if, if you know enough to not do it in front of other people, you're not insane. Yeah. You're fucked. Right. But you're not insane. 
In September of 1989, excerpts of Wesley's diary as published by author Gary C. King go from a chronicle of past pedophilic deeds to a hunter's logbook. Oh, wow. The following gives a unique look into a psychopath's thought process. Wesley wrote, Saturday, September 2nd, 1989. Located David Douglas Park and did this. Here an arrow points to the hand-drawn map of the park. Ideal area. South and west sides of the park are wooded gully. Isolated areas, especially in the east end. With one half hour, saw three together, 610 to 640, and nothing else. And three potential victims is what he's talking about. Good for R and M, which, according to a key in his diary, was rape and murder. Hmm. Or K for kidnapping and R and M. Oh, fuck. Oh. On Sunday, September 3rd, 1989, he wrote, 10.40 to 11 a.m., checked same area out, intended to spend up to five hours this afternoon to obtain what I want. Depending on circumstances, will R and M at site, or may K from there, then R at home, and again, depending on circumstances, will either M at home or take another location and possibly R again before M. If I can get it, King notes here that Wesley refers to his victim as it and not a person. Hmm. Home, I'll have more time for various types of R rather than just one quickie before M. Like just so mathematical in his approach of this. The dehumanizing Mm -hmm. of the victim. It is simply in his perspective, it is just an object. For his pleasure. For my pleasure. Yeah. I don't even think it's entering his mind throughout any of this. I wonder how this makes that person feel. Yeah. From that same day, 12.05 p.m., begin hunt. Intend to have fun today or tomorrow at latest, since tomorrow is a school-closed holiday, Labor Day. 2 p.m., returned home for drink. Time for reflections on the hunt. He wrote about sightings of possible prey. 1. Two boys, approximately 9 and 10 or 11. Oldest, big for his age, would have taken younger smaller if alone for R and M. 2. Two girls, 7 and 12, would have R and M younger if alone. 3. Four boys, 3 were 7 or 8, 1 12. If older was not there, I could have separated the younger 3, doing M to the first two and then R and M to the last, the best looking of the three. They were looking for a place to go to the bathroom and kept saying, just go for it here. I watched. They finally realized there was a restroom in the park. Four. One boy was about four wandering away from teenagers playing ball, but never got far enough away or out of their sight, else I would have gotten him further out of sight for a possible R, R, and M, or at best, R and M. Oh, my God. Holy Christ. Yeah. And I would guess that not one of these youngsters had an inkling what kind of monster was watching them in the park that no, day. No. It makes you wonder in, in, in life, like how many times have I just been, you've just been yeah. going about life. And well, the been... girls in 36 times, say 36 times in your life you've walked past a murderer. Uh, I hmm. don't know if that's actual fact. Well, but, you know, sure. That's the thing. Yeah. On September 4th, 1989... 
Having been unable to find suitable victims up to this point, Wesley was about to give up. He thought he would give it one more shot. This time he spotted the near brothers, Cole 11 and Billy 10. He later wrote, 610 arrived at park, 615 began walking from end of trail, 618 found two boys, no one else around, about proper age I figured, 619 I approached and said, I want you two to come with me, older said why, I said because I told you to and you can bring your bikes if you want, said that because the younger was looking to leave his behind, I didn't want someone to find it and start looking for him, end quote. Hmm. Dodd walked the boys to a more secluded part of the park, warning them not to cry out or talk to anyone on the way, threatening them with his knife. When he found a spot that he had scoped out and knew was quiet enough, Wesley bound the boys and began molesting them. The boys cried and Wesley controlled the situation by telling them he would let them go after he had finished. Wesley stopped the molestation and said, just one more thing, before plunging his knife into young Billy's stomach. At that point, both boys tried to run. Wesley gave chase and caught up to Cole, stabbing him several times. Billy, gravely injured by the brutal knife wound, had run off. Rather than stick around and risk being caught, trying to find Billy and finish him off, Wesley left the park. Holy shit. Oh my, that is intense. From Dodd's journal that evening. After the murders, I noticed blood on my left hand. Keeping it in my pocket, I calmly climbed to the main park, greeting an older man and throwing a stray baseball to a couple of guys on the way back to my car. Just so casual. I circled around and, on the other side of the park, found a guy running down the hill. I figured he'd found Billy since I left him out on the trail. I didn't want to leave fingerprints on his bloody clothes or get blood on me, trying to get him into the bushes as Cole was. I'd expected Billy to die right with Cole, still hidden. It turns out lucky I didn't go back to check Billy or the guy would have seen me too. It was about 6.45 when I got out of the main park. My total time with the boys had been 18 to 20 minutes. Billy near died in the hospital that night after being found and brought there by Good Samaritans. You you often hear people uh, like BTK, uh, Green River Killer, you, you often hear when they're talking about their crimes, like they're reading the grocery list. Mm. That's very much what this is like. Like he's just uh, going over details to a camping trip. Well, it's giving me a tension headache having to say these words. I, like it really uh, is. No, seriously, yeah, I bet. And to do this research and what you've had to read? Yeah, it was not good. No. Dodd wrote later that he masturbated while thinking about the events numerous times. He disposed of the bloody knife the next day, first wrapping it in a manila envelope and then tossing it into a dumpster near his work. He watched, listened, and read all the news reports about the murders of the Near brothers. Wesley cut out newspaper articles about the murders and then kept them in a scrapbook. He fully expected the police to kick down the door and arrest him. They never came. His dark desires arose inside him once again. Over the ensuing weeks, between forays to parks, movie theaters, and other places frequented by young children, he looked for his next victim. Wesley also wrote. His notes became more and more disturbing. He wrote in detail about his desire to kidnap and hold a child to gratify himself sexually before murdering the child and mutilating them, performing what he called exploratory surgery on the corpse. Holy shit. 
just before Halloween on October 29, 1989, Wesley Allen Dodd was on the hunt again. This time he took himself over the state line into Oregon, into Portland. He did not want a chance hunting in the same park where he'd killed the boys. Mm-hmm. Dodd targeted four-year-old Lee Isley and his nine-year-old brother, Justin, playing at a local park. Wesley made his move when he saw the younger boy playing alone on a slide. Lee's older brother was not close by. Wesley succeeded in convincing the boy to come with him. Dodd wrote, 12.50 p.m., a couple of blocks from the school I asked, and he said his name was Lee and said he was four years old. He started to cry a couple of times, but I reached out and held his hand, assuring him he'd be okay and that we'd have some fun. At 1.30 p.m., we got to my house. Both landlady and the other tenant were gone. Perfect. I started to carry him from the car, but he said, I can walk, and I put him down. As Lee Isley's parents called 911 to report their son missing, he was entering Wesley Allen Dodd's home, and he would not leave there alive. Dodd bound the youngster, molested and photographed him for the next day before strangling him with a rope and hanging him in the closet, Mm. where Wesley took pictures of the boy before stuffing Lee's body into garbage bags and dumping him near a Vancouver lake. Yeah, that's the one that always uh, lingers in my head. Mm. That poor child in a closet. From Dirksy Gibson's Serial Murder and Media Circuses, quote, Lee Isley's body was discovered on November 1st, 1989, in the Washington State Game Preserve. Deputy Dave Lundy was the first on scene at 941. He called his supervisor, Detective Sergeant Rob Bob Rayborn, to report the body. Detectives Dave Trimble and Rick Buckner were assigned to the case, arriving at the dump site at 10.20 a.m. with their supervisor, Sergeant Mike Kessner. Since this case seemed to cross police jurisdictions, an informal task force, including the Vancouver Police Department and the Portland Police Bureau and the Clark County Sheriff's Department, was created. A little boy taken over state lines and murdered. FBI could be involved at that point yeah, as yeah, well. I don't know if they were, because there was no mention of it in what I've read. Cops had no real idea who had murdered Little Lee and had not definitively connected the other two murders. They brought in the usual suspects, some of whom looked good. Wesley Allen Dodd was not among them. Mm. Meanwhile, Dodd kept his head down, spending most of his time in his apartment, writing down his plans for further child abductions, rape, and murder. Wesley also constructed a homemade torture rack for his next victim that, thankfully, went unused. So I always find one of the most concerning things is any time a child is found dead, the police always have go-tos. The fact that they, like, oh, we've got a list of people. Yeah. Like, the fact that every police detachment, there's a list of people who could possibly, they think could be child killers. Like, that is terrifying. Yeah. From a ThoughtCo.com article on Wesley Allen Dodd, quote, Dodd, avoiding the local parks, decided that movie theaters would be a good place to hunt his next victim. He went to the New Liberty Theater and waited for a young child to go unattended to the restroom. He managed to get screaming six-year-old boy outside, but was captured by William Ray Graves, the boyfriend of the child's mother. Dodd was interrogated by police from Washington and Oregon as a suspect in the murders of the Near Brothers and Lee Isley. At first, he denied having any knowledge about the children and maintained that he only meant to molest the child from a theater only. Yeah, yeah, that's all. 
Then his whole attitude changed, and Wesley confessed to the murders, delighting in, delighting in reveling in the shocking details. He directed police to his diary, Lee Isley's Ghostbuster briefs, the incriminating photos he had taken, and his unused torture rack, end quote. On the advice of counsel, at first, Wesley Allen Dodd pled not guilty to three counts of first-degree murder, but later changed his plea to guilty on all three counts. He left his sentencing up to the jury. Wesley himself claimed that the death penalty would be the right form of punishment Mm -hmm. and testified, quite frankly, from the Discovery Channel show Most Evil. Here's a few moments of Wesley's own chilling testimony. Do you swear the evidence you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so for God? I do. What would be your intention if you're forced to live in prison? Do everything I can to escape, and if necessary, kill prison guards on the way out, and I'll go right back to doing what I did before, as soon as I hit the streets. Which is what? Kill kids. Kill and rape kids. Yes. So you should be executed for the safety of others. Yes. Yeah. Chilling indeed. I don't disagree with him. I mean, I'm not a proponent of the death penalty, yep. but... Um, I, I'm not. Uh, I am quite... I am very staunchly anti-capital punishment, but I'm not, I'm not upset that he's dead. You're right. You know, and that... Yeah, I, I'm not upset that... Because he's guilty. Yeah. He admitted he's guilty. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sad that he's dead. After Dodd's testimony, the jury looked at Wesley's diary, pictures, and other evidence. In the end, he got what he wanted. Yeah. Wesley Allen Dodd received the death sentence on July 15, 1990. He said he wanted to be hung, as he had done to Lee Isley. Now, that I'm not okay with, because um, there's likely a component of him getting off on that. Sure. You know? And this is weird, too, this next bit. In prison... Dodd communicated with kids. What? He wrote a pamphlet he claimed was to help children who may be vulnerable to the types of crimes he had committed. It reads, Oh boy. Quote, When you meet a stranger by Wesley Allen Dodd. Introduction. Written by a professional. Who I am, what I've done, why this was written. There are things that work that kids can do to protect themselves. I have never molested or harmed any child that resisted me. Sometimes it took just a no. Sometimes it took more. What can you do? Many boys and girls are told, don't take candy from strangers or don't get in a stranger's car. But what should you do when you're alone and someone you don't know wants you to go with him or wants you to pull down your pants or do something else you know is bad? What do you do if there's no grown-up around that can help you? Do you do what the stranger wants and hope he'll go away soon? No. The stranger is bigger and stronger than you, and you might be scared, but you can make him run away. Sometimes the stranger is just as scared as you are. He's afraid you might do something to get him caught. He'll leave you alone and run away from you. How can a boy or girl make a grown-up run away when he wants to do something bad to you? What do you do? Just say no. You may have been told to just say no to drugs, but you can also just say no to someone who wants you to go somewhere with him. You can say no to a person who tells you to pull down your pants or take your clothes off. There are other people like me. We make you take your clothes off. Some of us 
tell you to get into cars. We can be nice to you, or we can be very mean. Sometimes sometimes some of us want to hurt you or even kill you, but you can still get away. A boy said no. Then before I could say anything else, he ran away. I ran away too. I went the other way. I didn't want anyone to see me chasing him, and I was afraid he'd send the police back to get me. No, then run. Another boy said no and then tried to run. I grabbed his arm and wouldn't let him go. He finally pulled his pants down and let me touch him, so I'd let him go. Is there anything else that he could have done to protect himself? What? I met another boy. He was six years old. I told him, you have to come with me. He said no and tried to get away from me. But I picked him up and started to carry him away. He knew he couldn't get away, but he didn't give up, and he started screaming and yelled, someone help me, he's killing me. He kept screaming and yelling for help. I was afraid someone would hear him, so I let him go and ran away. I didn't want to get caught, but the boy ran and told someone what happened, and the police caught me ten minutes later. That six-year-old boy didn't know what I was going to do. He only knew I was trying to take him away, and something real bad could happen. Instead of being scared and going with me, he yelled for help. He's a hero now, because even though he was afraid of me, he screamed and yelled for help when he needed it. Just say no, then run. Scream. It will scare him away. Yell for help. Get away fast and tell someone what happened. Always tell someone. Be a hero. End quote. Little Nancy Reagan there. Uh, Don't you find the tone of this pamphlet a little weird? I find it incredibly weird. And it, it made me wonder, you know, if just the writing and distribution of it was just another way for him to relive his sick shit and get off on things all over again. That's a challenge with him because you, you, when somebody is displaying the amount of candor that he, never he had, said he through... regretted it. He never once yep. said that he regretted what he did. Not, not at all. But that's what I'm getting at. Like he's very honest and candid about what he's done, mm. who he is, and he'll do it again. Yeah. So you know, why would you then draw a line with this part? Like, well, but this is secretly to get me off. Um. I, why it's creepy as fuck. And like, yeah. Oh, Wesley finally paid for his crimes, but before he did, he spoke out in one last interview. We're unsure who the reporter is in this audio as he's uncredited in the multiple YouTube videos where the audio appears and I'll post a link for it. So if anybody knows, just tell me and I'll credit the person in our show notes. And here's that audio. Why do you want to be executed? Uh, I have to be. Uh, I will kill again. No, I would do it again. I've been molesting kids nonstop since I was 13 years old, over half my life. Uh, anything happened, I can guarantee I'd do it again, and sooner or later I would kill another child. I've done it before, and at the time I liked it. Dodd also says that if he ever escapes from prison, there is someone in particular that he will be out to kill. I'm not going to say who, but there is somebody out there. There's a man out there. There's a man? Yeah. Someone related to the case that got you imprisoned in the first place? Mm, not directly, no. But it's something that you know that you're going to do or you, you plan to do, you want to do. Yeah. Did your execution do any good? I think it would. I think a few child molesters anyway are going to think twice before they do anything again. 
How do you live with yourself daily? At times, it's not easy. Uh, I said there's times you know, I think about what I've done. Uh, I think about some of the things the boys said before they died, and, and that's real hard to think about. Um, but other times, I just try to put everything out of my mind. Do you look forward to dying? In a way, yeah, I could be a relief. I don't have to think about all these things anymore. Uh, and I know that's the only way I can guarantee I'm not going to hurt anybody else. Um, you know, right now I'd sit here and say I don't want to, but I know it'll happen. Whew. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about this person, nor yeah. is there anything that should be celebrated. But I do appreciate the candor because I, I get so sick when you hear other serial killers, other murderers, other mass murderers, other pedophiles, uh, when there's always this rationalization or justification or, oh, you know, the, my neighbor's dog was barking and it's the devil. You know, the, yeah. The, the, I do appreciate somebody going, no, I'm sick and I will continue to do this. Yeah. But don't appreciate the individual. I can't stand the individual. I'm glad he's gone. But there is a, uh, there is something to just hear in a killer go like, no, you can't let me out. Yeah. You can't let me out. From an article in the Kitsap Sun on January 5th, 1993, quote, Dodd gave a brief final statement after being led to the gallows. Mm. I was once asked by somebody, I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped, Dodd said. I said no. I was wrong. I was wrong when I said there was no hope, no peace. There is hope. There is peace. I found both in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord and you will find peace. I, I doubt that the Near and Isley family felt much comfort in those words. Yeah, I don't. No. I don't, and it's just, uh, I get that it was his last statement, but it's just, it's always convenient. When oh, you're, I've made peace with, yeah. it, you know. I'm the okay. moment before yeah. you're going to be gone, you know, and the time when you'd really hope there is an afterlife, and if there is, you'd really like to get in there. How convenient at that moment you're like, oh, by the way, so sorry. Loves me some Jesus. So sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it for this week's case. That was just a little light topic. Just a light one. Wow. But, uh, you know, um, we've done some um, different things over the last little while. And, yep. Yep. Uh, this was an away game that we wanted to cover. For, yeah, we've for talked about time, it so. for quite a long time. We talked about this even before. before way before we were. Uh, doing or, a show. Yeah, or t or thinking about it. Like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right, it's time for voicemails. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's listen to this one. Let's check this one out. Hey, Mike is Dot. It's Jody from The Hammer Calling. I would do the podcast uh, about a year ago, and now I can't go anywhere without listening to them. I'm always happy when you have a new one. I'm trying really hard to not suck balls for too long, because maybe you'll play my call. But either way, I wanted to let you know that I think you have a fabulous show. I absolutely love it. And no matter how dark the topic is, you always finish it off with a smile. And I'm usually laughing to myself when I'm walking. So 
keep up the great work. Keep being as respectful and kind as you are. You're a great guy. I feel like you're my buddy. And uh, I look forward to one-sided chatting with you every week. I tell you to take a shit in your hat, but it's pretty hot out now, not get messy. So have a great week. Love you guys. Thanks, Jody from the Hammer. She's, where is the Hammer? Hamilton. Oh, is that they call it a Hammer? Well, some people do. Oh, well, she does. Wow. <laughs> uh, it, and you, your call absolutely did not suck balls. No, it so did. Thank you for it. Yeah, for thanks so much. De sucking balls. De sucking. Yeah, uh, unsucking. She yeah. must have gotten that from you because that's not that's, something that I say. And and, and it's something that it's a phrase I really love, and yeah. so it probably came out once or twice. Or oh, I I don't doubt that it came out once yeah. or twice. And uh, I'm glad that she didn't want us to take our shit in the hat in sticky weather. I'm 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 sweating already. Just I remember when we used to have a dog and having to pick it up in the heat. Oh, it's god. not good. Oh god. Yes. Yeah, so you you've got a dog now. You know what I'm talking. Yeah, about. but like you picking it up is nothing. Yeah. Here's one from another person in uh, Ontario. Let's have a listen. Hey, guys. Cassandra here. Just want to say thanks for the laughs and the great information on my uh, commutes back and forth from the dirty schwa to Toronto. Uh, Anyway, though I may be a bush wrangler, at least I don't shit in my hat. (laughs) Take care. Thanks again. Bye. Oh, maybe a pa- a patron there, Colin yeah. Scott. Bush has got to get wrangled, Mike. Yeah, it's got to happen. Somebody's got to do it. Bush has got to get wrangled. Right. What happens if you don't wrangle bushes? They become unruly. They become unruly. They're everywhere. You can't go out. Yeah. It's like Day of the Triffids, but with bushes. Yeah. Okay, here's one uh, that looks like it might be. It's 204, so I'll bet you it's a Winnipegger or someone in uh, Manitoba. Hi there, guys. It's Jennifer Berry calling from Fisher Branch, Manitoba. I just wanted to say I'm a huge, huge fan of the podcast. Uh, my husband and I, along with our two adult boys, have listened to the podcast for, well, pretty much since the beginning. Um, we are uh, cattle farmers and standard poodle breeders, believe it or not, and whenever I'm grooming my poodles, I pop my AirPods in and listen to an episode or two while I'm grooming my dogs or when we're driving across Canada or into the States to go to dog shows, we also listen to the podcast. And we love your your suggestions for other podcasts too. So I just wanted to phone and say that we're big fans and that we love the show. I love how kind you guys are to each other and to the other victims, and I just, I think that you really make the stories compelling and real and interesting, and, you know, it's a good way of shedding light on what's out there and what to be wary about, And, and we get to see the compassionate side of people like you guys, so I just really appreciate listening to the podcast. Uh, I sent an email with a suggestion for a future podcast. If you guys are interested, it would be really neat to hear it. Um, But, yeah, just wanted to phone and say you guys are awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't change. We love you guys. And instead of saying take a shit in your hat because of COVID-19, I'm going to say go sneeze in your sleeve. Take care, guys. Bye for now. (laughs) Cattle cattle farmers and uh, standard poodle breeders. Standard poodle breeding. It, now, word of advice, don't combine those two. Don't know. You'd have a weird-looking cow. <laughs> or a, I don't know. Or a, a really, really... Standard... Uh, a, a dog you can milk. Poodle cow. 
Maybe maybe a dog, dog you could milk. I don't like the burgers. sound of that. I... Dog burgers. <laughs> oh Jesus. Oh boy. Oh, that could get that. Ve- nah, that's really bad. Yeah, but that was that was a wonderful voicemail. Yeah, it, that's uh, it. Really, very was. kind and supportive, and, and, and um, contrary to what the last uh, person yeah. one contrary to what one person said to us that last we week play. that we didn't play that yeah. we we're kind to each other because we really do love each other. Oh, just God, so yeah. you guys know. Scott and I are, are really good friends, and the ribbing is all in fun. There's never offense taken. It's Unless uh, I, I punch him in the face or something like that. Well, I don't think you could reach that far. No. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm kind of rotund. Yeah, Dude, probably yeah. just run away. And little arms. So. Like, you know, saying. short little arms. Saying. At least my arms are not of osteoporosis. Oh, they're not brittle. <laughs> oh, we're Scott going. We're, brittle bones. we're going to the bone jokes, are we? Oh, oh God! Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you so much, and uh, and uh, that's kind of cool that somebody listens to us yeah, that does those on things. a farm, milking mm-hmm. cows and such, and and grooming their dogs. Yeah, probably putting like the pom pom hairdos on. Well, I think like that's like law with poodles. This one. Is a little sad, I think. Um, but we, I, I kind of want to play it because I feel compelled to. Let's do it. Hey, Mike and Scott. This is uh, Jeff Powell from uh, Ontario. Uh, I go by the name Casper. Uh, I would uh, like to thank you for uh, keeping me distracted uh, as I uh, had to put my uh, dog down of 13 years today. I listened to the Sasquatch uh, podcast as you uh, were keeping my mind elsewhere as I was uh, doing a job I don't want to do. So I'd like to thank you very much for that and uh, go poop in your tubes. Love you guys. Bye. Oh, Casper, we love you too. That yeah. is really, uh, I that's something I had to do a couple of years ago. Yeah, me too. And the pain was immense. I remember... Yeah curling up on the spot he used to sleep yeah and so i could smell him and crying yeah. for days i um, did a photo essay of um, where my dog used to be where uh, she used to meet me on yeah, the stairs yeah where she where we kept her bed where we uh where she would eat yeah and all those spaces oh, were just empty in our place oh, after that god so yeah casper our, our heart is with you and I'm really, really glad we could at least provide you with a bit of a distraction through that challenging time. And, uh, yeah, oh, thank you for sharing, Casper. All right. It is on to a Patreon oh, shout goodness. out. Oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, goodness. oh, yes. Oh, before I forget, uh, we want to make sure that people know how to leave a voicemail for us. You can do so at one 877 Three two seven five seven eight six. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. So yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, that uh, yeah, do but it. On to Patreon uh-huh. uh, shout outs. Yeah, let let's let's see who uh, gave us some Patreon love this week. Let's do that. Yeah, it's all, always fun to to see our new folks. It is. It really is. Uh, make make some fun with them. Have because... some fun. Have some fun. <laughs> Have well, we are. We do. I guess it's not. It is actually literally at their expense. It that is that we are having fun, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. It is like financially at their expense. <laughs> we are. Having They're paying fun. us to sometimes um, have fun. Have fun at at them at them. So but really, you're that, all masochists. I think what they they mean it with them. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hoping that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Because if it's not, we're two six SOBs. So, uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, mm-hmm. yep. Well, mm-hmm. there is that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. there yep. is. Um, okay, I'm just looking. Mm-hmm. All right. First up from Sisseton, South Dakota, what? is Nicole Finez. What? Where is it? Sisseton. Sisseton. The hell is Sisseton? South Dakota. Yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah, I've never heard of that place. Neither have I. I drove through huge. North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, not East or West Dakota, no. as, you, as you've said before. Uh, yeah, all the you, oh, there's all the Dakotas. What do you think Nicole does in Sisseton? In Sisseton, uh, South Dakota, she what she does is she has to groom the eyebrows on uh, Mount Rushmore. Oh, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, so she's is an that eye- close to that? It is. It Are is. you sure? Uh, it's in South Dakota. Are you sure? I don't know this for sure. Yeah. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Well, because I, I've never been. Because Trump just did his. Uh, oh, right. Thing, so, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, so, yeah, she she's an eyebrow. So she, because uh, people don't, aren't aware of this. Yeah. On Mount Rushmore, the four presidents, their eyebrows do actually grow. Did I ever tell you the story about my dad? He had cancer, oh, uh, well, a skin cancer on. Starting off great. It was a basal cell carcinoma, okay. which is, is very mild skin cancer, but it still had to be removed. Mm-hmm. And so they took hair from the back of his neck uh, and replaced his eyebrow where they removed the cancer with hair from the back of his neck. And now he has to clip it. Oh, wow. Because it will grow like normal wow. hair. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's pretty much what they did on Mount Rushmore. There you go. Yeah. And so, yeah. So uh, Jenny. Uh, no. Nicole. Nicole. That's, so Nicole, not not. Not, not Jenny. No, no, Nicole. Don't correct yourself. Just so, carry on. So Nicole, uh, <laughs> it, that's what she does. Yeah. She, she has to use like you've never seen bolt cutters this thick. Oh, there you go. But, oh my God, they're major huge. bolt cutters. Yeah, major. But two people required. So she has a partner. And apparently, we missed a Patreon shout out. That's not like us. Our friend Ray Etscheid from Peru, Illinois. She wait, emailed us. Wait a minute. There's a Peru in Illinois. Peru in Illinois. Whoa. She emailed us to let us know that we had forgotten her because I've asked and that's, people Yeah, and that's to what do you that. do. Thank you very much for doing that. That's much exactly, appreciated. Because we don't want to leave anybody out. No, and if we have left you out, it was not intentional. Yep. Yep. It is a mistake. Which is easy to do. If you see the database uh, in Patreon to try to keep up to date with who's doing what, it's not the most user-friendly. No. So it can happen. So, yeah, just, just let us know. Exactly. So thank you, Ray Etscheid from... Peru, Illinois. Thank you, Ray. Where is Ray? F- what does Ray do? I shouldn't say where she's from because we know it's Peru. Peru. Or or is that just like a, a, a Could ruse? Could be a cover. Exactly. But what, sh- what does Ray do? Uh, well, you know, there's a reason why Ray is living in Peru. Okay. Because Ray mm-hmm. makes and plays pan flutes. We've had somebody do that before. Yes. It's a it's a very, very busy trade. But because p- that's their the origins are Peru. So see, she is a but this is Peru, Illinois. Uh-huh. That's Peruvian it's the not, country. It's not my fault. She didn't understand that when I moving there. Gotcha. She just saw the name and thought, Oh, I thought it was further than this and moved there. Well, there you go. Thank you, Ray. Many thanks, Ray. Ironically, our next patron is from Vancouver, Washington. Oh, Jesus. And her name what is Jenny heck? Erickson. This is not planned. This was not planned. We we had this episode planned before Holy Jenny crap. became uh, Jesus. a patron. So what does Jenny do in in Washington? 
in Vancouver, Washington. Does she paint pictures of Mount St. Helens, perhaps? Because that's she, she doesn't. By. She doesn't. She actually leads uh, a campaign. Okay. To um, what they're trying to, what she is trying to do, met with a lot of resistance in Vancouver, Washington, is she's leading a campaign to actually change the name to Vancouver Two. <laughs> yeah, and people are like, "No, we're this. We get to keep. We get to have this name too." And she's like, "Well, but." There's well, because it is Captain there's Vancouver. A, there's a bigger Vancouver, so we should be Vancouver too. And she's not. She's meeting a lot of resistance. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. But so that's what she's doing. She's so yeah, a Vancouver two campaign. Well, thanks, Jenny. Mm-hmm. While you're out campaigning, you found time to give us a Patreon yeah. donation. Yeah, and I'd say maybe kind of bring some of that forward to here because you probably get a lot of support in Vancouver, BC. There you go. Yeah. Uh, next we have Daphne Nicholson, and she is from. Kamloops, British Columbia. Oh, the Loops. The Loops. Yeah, we were just up there filming. Not I, but the crew was just up there filming. Nice. Yeah. What does Daphne do in the Loops? Oh, what she does in the Loops is she's a tumbleweed organizer. Oh. Yep. There you go. Yep. That's she, probably a good job. Yeah, it is. There's lots of tumbleweeds. It's quite deserty in yep. Kamloops. And so she, uh, yeah, she organizes them. She doesn't get rid of them. They, they like the tumbleweeds. They like them there, but she just kind of makes sure they're not on the road and stuff. Oh. Puts them, she builds kennels for them and stuff. It's cool. Our next patron, I think, is telling us what she does by her name. Oh. And she is from Fort St. James, British Columbia. Her name is Pearl Dyer. Yep. That's what she does. She dyes that, pearls. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. People yeah. don't know that pearls are dyed. Right. People don't get it. They don't know. They well, just you've think, seen a black pearl. I have, yep. Johnny Depp. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't want to get into his <laughs> domestic situation nope, right no now. No, thank you. But uh, Pearl Dyer yeah. died the Black Pearl for that show. Yeah, I th- I was wondering, because yeah. there's not a lot of Pearl Dyers. No. It's not, there's not a lot of them, and so there's only three. And uh, I, I suspected it was Pearl Dyer. So, there you wow, go. Now, now I know. Next we have Vicki Maitland, and I don't know where Vicky's from. You don't, I nope. do. Where's she from? San Juan. Oh, in New Mexico, Puerto Rico. Oh, Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah, what is, it's not, there is no San Juan, New Mexico, is there? I don't know. Yes, there is. She's in, in according Puerto, to my brain, Puerto Rico. According to my brain, there's a <clears throat> there's a San Juan in Puerto Rico, USA. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yep. And what she do there? Um, she's a uh, log fisherman. Oh, she woman. fishes logs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I don't. I like don't, a beachcomber. I don't get like it Bruno Jerusi and Relic. Oh, great, great, uh, great reference. But I don't know. I don't know. She's never. I've been like when we talk. I'm like, so what you up to lately? And she's like, yeah, log fishing. And yeah. then I don't. I don't broach it. I'm just like, there you cool, go. Cool. She's you know. Just so, keep it up. Yep. Just keep fishing them logs or whatever. I don't know. Just, well, thanks, Vicky. Yeah. Thanks, Vicky. Next, we have Rhonda Stock from Estevan, Saskatchewan. Mm. Um, what does Rhonda do in Estevan other than watch your dog run away for three days? Because <laughs> oh, it's so flat. Yes. Uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, Estevan is the town. Yes. Not her name. No. Uh, she is, Rhonda is her yes, name. Yes. She is a, um, oh, a fence mender. She mends fences. Yes. I've had to mend some fences in my yes. days. Yes. 
Yeah. She does it literally. Oh, she does actual yeah. fence yeah, mending. Yeah, because you've seen chain link fences and oh, there's yeah. like, you know, things. Yeah, yeah she has yeah. her job. She goes and she mends them. Does she mend electric fences as well? She can. She can. It's it's really easy sometimes to forget. Oh, and yeah. Like, oh, and you're like, you know, it's going to throw you off for a few minutes. But then she just like, yeah, got to turn that power off first. And then Note, back don't it. take a pee on an electric fence. No, no. Yeah, don't do that. No, not in it. Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you, Rhonda. Next, we have Ricky Chambers from Highlands Ranch, Colorado, oh. in the excited states of America. So mm-hmm. thank you, Ricky. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. Uh, what does Ricky do? Oh, he's a weatherman. A weather? Ricky yep. is a weather girl. Yes. W- Ricky is a Ricky is a weather, weather person. person. Ah, yes, okay. exactly. He's a weather person on uh, CHKZ. Okay. Yeah. You're just making it up. That's the biggest. Because aren't they the Ks in... in in the states, the K blah blah blah. Usually, Canada is C. Usually, yeah, usually. But they, Scott Scott's not big on his radio call. Well, th- no, I am. It's not my fault. They did the wrong one for that. Oh, okay, you know they yeah. C for Colorado. Yes, okay, yeah, I think I maybe you. that's maybe that's why. But uh, yeah, that's that's what uh, she does. And, that's what uh, that person does. That's what that person does. That's what uh, Ricky does. Uh, that's what Ricky does. Okay. Ricky is a weather person and great sense of humor. Okay. Oh, you'll always see Ricky. People are always like, oh, that Ricky. <laughs> I love the weather that Ricky is said. does. Yeah, yeah. There you go. and uh, and then they like they, Ricky will do the little jokes on the TV. And they go, oh, here's the you know, here's it's cold over here, but it's summer. <laughs> oh boy. Uh-huh. Next, we have Suzanne Stevens, yep. whom I am unaware of her location. Oh, oh, well, uh, Port O Spain. Oh, Port O Spain. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in Trinidad and Tobago. I don't oh, know if that's an accent that, that fits actually anywhere. Nice. Yeah. It, yeah actually, it's probably my, warm and humid there. My former rap partner was uh, where his parents were from. His mom was from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Suzanne. What does Suzanne do? Uh, she's, she she's my friend. Rap? She's my former rap partner's mom. That's what. Oh, okay. Yeah, there that's what go. she does. Yeah. Well, how about them apples? Yeah, yeah, they miss you. <laughs> Next, we have Jen, and she is from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Oh, the peg. Yep, there you go. The, the peg, peg, where your dad's from. My my poppers is from the peg. Yep. What does Jen do there? Uh oh. Uh, she drive. What I don't. What do, what do they call them? Those vehicles for like when it's snow. A car snowplow. Yes, a snowplow. Oh, yes, snowplow yeah. operator. Because Winnipeg. I mean, you're busy like six months out of the year. Portage of Maine, standing there freezing to death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's what. Uh, that's our, what Jen does. That's what Jen does. She's. Oh. It, it's. It's actually kind of fun. Like, I, like I don't know about you, but me, when I'm driving and there's snow, I just all the time. I just want to plow through big. Bales of snow. Did I ever tell you my friend Ken had a truck that he bought for like a hundred dollars, and we used to run into things in the snow? And one time, (laughs) one time there was a uh, there was a uh, shopping cart that was in the middle of a a parking lot near a large snow mound. Yes, and we pounded it flat into the snow mound with his truck. Holy crap, that's amazing. Yeah, I, it was really fun. I had a, a Geo Tracker, or Chevy Tracker. Oh, boy. And it snowed, and I put it in the four-wheel drive and plowing through the school parking lot. And? And? Police uh, came. Nope, nope. Uh, most of the snow was soft and so- and uh, and delicious. This one, I guess there was a lot of, like, dry, uh, 
frozen snow underneath it. And so I, my vehicle went up and it kind of like just was teetering. Oh, you high-sided yourself. Yeah, it's teetering. Oh, nice. It was te- you had to find some, some guy like, hey, can you pull us off? And they were laughing yeah. at your yes. pretend yes. four-wheel As drive were we. vehicle. Oh, what a, it was such a, just the lamest vehicle, but I loved it at the time. There you go. All of its 88 horsepower. Next, we have Tina Angel, and she is from Surrey, British Columbia. Hey, wow. Yeah, so a local. Thanks, Tina. We'll see you at the grocery store, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably so. Someone did did text me one time saying he saw me at the grocery store and, and oh. uh, like, messaged me over Facebook and said, I think I just saw you at the grocery store. It was somebody I didn't know, and I was like, why didn't you just say hi? Yeah. And the guy was like, well, I didn't want to scare you. And it's like, so messaging me out of the blue? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if you see us, Tina, please say hello. Yeah, do we it. would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, because you're in the hood. Uh, next up, uh, as far as patrons go, we have one last one, uh, and her name is Leanne. Leanne, I don't know where Leanne is from. Ah, uh, from Estonia. Estonia. Yeah, in Kazakhstan. Oh, she's from Kazakhstan. <laughs> yes, I know. Number one export, yeah. potassium. Yep. But I don't think that's actually true because Borat made a lot of things up about Kazakhstan what? and people just bought that. So what? Anyway, so what does she do in Kazakhstan? Uh, Potassium mining. She's a scout locator for films. Oh well, there you yeah, go. A set locator. Yeah, she's a set. Oh, so you mean location scout? That's right. Yes. I was going to say. I was working my way to it. Yeah, I worked in the director's guild. You have yeah. to be careful with the uh, actual titles I, because I, they're official. They took, I, I, got, I worked my way to it. There you go. Feel, you got there. I've stumbled through to, to yeah. the proper. So what kind of films are shot in Kazakhstan? Borat. Okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Let's look at PayPal. Our friend Dakota Harrington. Dakota Harrington said uh, she sent us a little money, a little donut money, and she said, it's been a little while, but I just wanted to say thank you, your friend to the south, Dakota, from Vermont. Aww. I don't know what Dakota does in Vermont, though. Uh, she has a podcast. Oh, what she, what, oh, okay, what kind? Uh, it's called Light Poutine. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. I know. Yeah. The, uh, it's been around longer the than law- us, The lawsuit is happening. It's pending. I yeah. know. I know. I She's, we've... It's odd that yeah, she's, she's suing us. It's odd that she's donating money because she's suing. Us. Yeah, it, I guess it's kind of like seeing how we react to it. Like, do we be like, oh, oh, well, we'll go donate money to you too, then? Yeah, in retaliation. And we've got another uh, donation from Irene Briand again. Wow. And uh, she didn't leave us a note this time, but uh, I've noticed her her little icon there on PayPal is a little Care Bear. That's fantastic. That's kind of nice. What? Where's I Irene from? Oh, Irene is from uh, not Kazakhstan. She's actually, she lives in Mount St. Helens. Really? Yeah. If Funny, again, Vancouver, Washington, yeah. very close by. Right? Hmm. All these links, yeah. Strange. Yeah. And what does she do in Mount St. Helens? Because you said she lives in. In Mount St. Helens, yeah. Okay. She, she keeps it from erupting. How does she do that? That's a great question. I don't know. That's why she has the job, not That's... us. Fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, wow. Probably thank just, you. I mean, she probably just always has a hose going or something. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. I, like, yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, thanks uh, to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to help support the show, uh, you can do so by subscribing at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us an iTunes podcast, a Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other stuff. Give us a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.